0: And I think the interesting places that things that are happening in print right now deal largely with sculpture and deal with publications. So like these two areas are like to me what's interesting in print. Like I have no desire to like make a landscape woodcut because I, there are a lot of good landscape woodcuts in the world. I don't really know that I need to add one to that list. But I think that there there is a lot of play, room to explore in terms of three-dimensional Um, collections of printed ephemera um, publications and the way books are assembled and put together and what their purpose can be seems really like not uncharted territory by any stretch, but maybe a less charted territory.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 172nd interview, we have Jason Urban coming back on. Again, you might have heard him before as part of printer but we have him solo today. Jason is a printmaker out of Austin, Texas, and we'll talk all about uh, his work and what's coming up. Of course, if you want to check out his work, please visit JasonUrban.com. If you are new to Studio Break, we want to direct you towards some of the archived interviews on studiobreak.com. Again, each of the posts up there have images of the artist's work as well as links so that you can find out more information, so please peruse. Again, we are in iTunes, so you can subscribe to the podcast there. And of course, if you'd like to follow us, we are in a variety of social media formats, so please be sure to like our Facebook page. You can also follow our Tumblr account, that's studio-break.tumblr.com. And, of course, you can send us tweets and say hello at Studio Break on Twitter. Here is our interview with Jason. Stay tuned. Well, I'll just say it. Welcome to Studio Break. Jason
0: Urban, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Dave.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you back on. I was just uh, reflecting. Uh, it's been like a year and a half. Uh, we were talking a little interesting, and we might kind of maybe see what the state of that is a little bit later, because um, I know you're involved in a number of uh, collaborations and things like that. But I invited you on because we never got the backstory. And, you know, I was thinking this, you'll probably be embarrassed, but for some reason, I just thought because I saw Back to the Future at the gym this week, I could imagine Jason Urban is the kind of kid that maybe rides a skateboard and grabs out of the back of a truck, you know, growing up.
0: Uh, well, I'm, I'm flattered that you have that uh, rebellious <laughs> image of me. Um, I really, I, I don't, I've probably been on a skateboard twice in my life and I've definitely never hung on to a moving vehicle. <laughs> I grew up in Northeastern Pennsylvania, anchored on the, on the mid Atlantic. I, I grew up closer to New York than to Philadelphia, but both were sort of within my sphere of like, you know, I could get to them in a car pretty easily.
1: So it wasn't an urban
0: environment? Um, no, it's sort of like, a. I mean, it's dense, it's densely populated. It's like just a conglomerate of towns, right? So like one town bled directly into the next, it's the Wyoming Valley. So, you know, like the Wilkes-Barre Scranton area, former coal country. But when I was growing up, it was like coal had left, you know, a couple of decades earlier and it sort of left a kind of bitter taste in people's mouth. It wasn't like a Having traveled widely since growing up, I feel like it wasn't a particularly cheery environment. And so
1: was art making something that was uh, encouraged as you were, you know, getting into trouble?
0: Yeah, I think my family was generally encouraging of of whatever my interests might be. Like I, I, there was no like trips to museums. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they were sort of baffled by my interest in sitting quietly and like working with paper and pencils, but I think they were definitely supportive of it. Yeah, they were. They were just happy I was like engaged and, and interested in what I was doing.
1: You have like a limited perspective of someone, you know, based on what you've seen them do. So I just imagine you—you you were the guy that invented that little three line, and then you like connect them in the middle designs, you know, like on the trapper keeper, maybe. Maybe that was before your time or after. I don't know. But I'm trying to imagine what you were drawing or like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because the, everything d- is so formal now, you know?
0: I definitely remember the, the advent of the Trapper Keeper. I was on the <laughs> scene. That that happened in my lifetime for sure. I remember a guy sitting next to a guy in uh, like, I guess, fourth and fifth grade and the two of us co- like collecting this huge pile of drawings actually in a Trapper Keeper of uh, Transformers. Mm-hmm like most kids, I think you just, you draw what's around you and you draw what's in your mind, animals. And vo- I remember drawing a lot of volcanoes for what it's worth, but I think that's probably just what sticks with you, you know? But I think I drew drew everything.
1: And so was that something that kind of like was solidified early on? Like, oh, I want to do, I want to be a graphic designer or illustrator or something or?
0: The places you get praised and rewarded, you know, you gravitate to- toward those things. I was never particularly praised for my <laughs> athletic prowess or <laughs> lack thereof. So, um, I mean, I remember winning an art contest in fourth grade for a drawing uh, of a deer that, uh, uh, the, the, the reward or the, the award was a, a basket of oranges. Cause one of the teachers in my school went to Florida on vacation. <laughs> and I was, I think I was like a little disappointed that what I got was oranges, but I also was very proud and excited to be, to be you know, deemed the best or whatever. I grew up, my mom at the time had a uh, cake decorating business. And so I said like, that it wasn't like we were making trips to the museum, but like, I think there was a, a creative house. My father was a carpenter for most of my life. He's done some other things as well, but, you know, building, he's, you know, a great like um, mechanic in terms of cars and is pretty like, you know, among his friends, he's definitely known as like a, like a, like a body man in terms of working on the bodies of cars. So mm-hmm. like painting cars. And, um, so there was a lot of creative activity in the house. Um, even if it wasn't like a, you know, old master style, you know, interest in the classical, you know, definition of fine arts.
1: Was there a, like a particular, uh, instance that you kind of like said, Oh, I want to major in art in terms of moving to college or was that something I don't know it's it's such a weird thing because it varies so much for
0: everyone you know yeah well you know I think um, you know in middle school I really and maybe a little before middle school I got really like probably like a lot of kids got really engaged with like comic books and comic book culture so I think that sort of took over my creative energy for a long time. Okay. So I'll just say, it's funny. Cause right now I teach at the university of Texas at Austin mm-hmm. and we're, we're a top 10% school. So our students are really sharp. They've worked really hard. Um, they have to be in the top 10, 10, percentile of their graduating class to come here. So they, a lot of them arrive with like real plans and know what they want. Um, that was not at all the case for me. And I think that might be where like coming from a more blue collar background, that was not as clear on the options, Mm -hmm. the, the way I ended up at college and the way I ended up in like the studio art program at my college was like literally a friend of mine turned around one day in like high school art class and said, you know, told me his mom was taking him to visit Kutztown university. And if you visit a school, you get an excused absence from school. And did I want to go with them? (laughs) And I was, it was literally like an excused absence from school. Yes, let's do it. And up until that point, I really thought I would be going to community college just because I, I thought, you know, I thought college was something I wanted, but financially it seemed like the community college would be the best route. But yeah, no, things just sort of fell into place. I, I, the only thing I really ever liked to do was draw. So it seemed like, if someone had sat down and explained to me in a reasonable way, like what the difference between design and art were as a major, mm-hmm. I think it's very possible I would have chosen design as a more practical route. I mean, I'm very happy with the decisions I made, but I, I didn't, I, I just feel like I sort of didn't know. And I just thought art, you know, I want to draw. And so, and if they I like kind of naively thought if they, if they offer you a degree in it, a degree in it, there must be a way to do something with it. Sure. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up, you know, with a degree from Kutztown university. It's sort of, if my friend hadn't, you know, offered to take me, <laughs> I think I could be living a very different life right now.
1: Yeah. It's unusual how that happens. Um, my, my brother was, a ISU alumni and I visited that place and there you go, you know, Yeah, just turns out they happen to have a great program. Um, But I guess in in terms of making sure that we don't bore the heck out of people, um, so in terms of just like undergraduate stuff, um, is that when you – I would imagine you took most of the stuff that everybody takes, but I'm imagining that like there's a silk screen or like printmaking class that was introduced at some point that you kind of fell in love with, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, and just to be clear, I perfectly expect to be like boring everyone with this, but (laughs) That's, that's my anticipation. So be be forewarned. Um, yeah, actually, so that same guy who invited me to go with him, we ended up being roommates. Like we both went to Kutztown university. He actually works on storyboarding out in LA now. So like he kind of stuck with the more like kind of comic book interests and I sort of gravitated, but he, I sophomore year, he came into our dorm room and like literally like threw a piece of zinc onto the, onto this pile on the floor and i was like what what is that and he's like oh it's for this intro to print printmaking class um and he sort of t- i wasn't in the class i feel like the moment he explained what etching was it made so much sense to me that i couldn't wait till spring to get into the course so um it just kind of clicked with me as an idea and then i think actually visiting the print shop like i said my father was you know, he was a carpenter, but he also did a, I mean, in his free time, he was working on cars. And I feel like there was a real connection to the print shop as a space that sort of felt, I never was interested in cars, but I think the environment of a garage made sense to me. And I think the print shop was like the closest, you know, I had seen to that kind of environment in an, in an art context. So, um, it just felt really, I felt comfortable there.
1: Yeah, there's some dangerous chemicals and... Yeah, the smells. Ventilation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but I was thinking about it related to, like, comic book type industry. And, um, you know, as someone that maybe dabbled in drawing uh, musculature myself, um, you know, you kind of start out, you know, like putting everything out in pencil and then you're kind of like working up in in ink. And then it's kind of like this thing that's colored in. And I think about this as a process... uh, maybe more relative to to printmaking than say painting where it might be kind of like really layered. So I'm curious if that's something. And, and again, I don't know if this is just a shot in the dark, but you know, in hindsight, I mean, does that kind of make sense? I mean, just that process,
0: the difference between like drawing comics and like looking at an actual comics, or you're never like looking at the original thing. And so um, I think like my interest in comics now, I, I, like I don't read comics now. I can't even I really. I can't even stand watching like superhero movies or anything like that. But shame. I think I think there's an interest in printed matter mm-hmm. that was at the heart of that. Like I, it's like kind of a nerd thing. But I do like to collect things. I try not to these days. But I think you know I have like you know a small, pretty curated collection of zines now, which I think have like sort of replaced the idea of comic books for me. But yeah, like the idea of like working with comics, you'd be working on a drawing, but your drawing was never the thing that people were supposed to engage with. Like ultimately you were supposed to, you know, like you said, ink it. And maybe, you know, you would, you would like, uh, like whether you were Xeroxing it or like trying to get it printed in some other way, like people would ultimately hold a different object than the drawing you made. And I think that there's something, I mean, not to read too much into it, but I think psychologically there's something that really is appealing to me about that. I think I like lots of things. Like I like the idea of my thing becoming many things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that might be a difference in the way you grow up. Like I, like I didn't want like handmade things growing up. Like I want, because I think like financially we were a little stressed. I always wanted like, you know, these like commercially produced things that seemed a little out of reach. And so I think the idea of making lots of something always was more valid than like the singular object like oh yeah sure anybody can make one thing but like to have your thing made into lots of things is w- way more of an accomplishment yeah
1: you're like a manufacturer
0: in a way yeah i think that's true
1: so in terms of the the work then um i would imagine you moved on from uh volcanoes and and the <laughs>
0: <like>. <laughs> yeah kind of i don't know maybe i need to make some volcano based work
2: <laughs>
1: But, you know, and again, I don't want to hash on it too long, but like in terms of, you know, like when you were an undergraduate, what, what, when you left, did something change in terms of like the kind of, you know, work that you were making or were there kind of particular artists that you were kind of inspired by or kind of like moved your work in a, in a direction that kind of made it a little bit more elevated?
0: There are these bodies of work that happen and then like, you know, 20 years later, you can sort of see these like arcs of interest. And I think in undergrad, I think I I was focused on the figure and I think I was focused on the figure for quite a few years out of undergrad. And I think whether that's because I was drawing the figure in, you know, like in high school as like more comic books or what, but even now when I pull out work, last semester, I pulled out some work to show my students from like around grad school time. And it was. I don't know, largely if not exclusively figure based. I feel like they were like sort of shocked because they know more what I do now, Mm -hmm. and were really surprised to see that I was like actually like a pretty competent figure drawer and like had that interest. Um, The other thing is that I think in undergrad I really threw myself into into print, and you know I studied under an artist named Evan Summer, who was really a master etcher. Um, Our print shop focused. I feel like 95% on etching. So like, it was a very, like when I got to grad school, I knew this one medium and process really, really well. I mean, there were a lot of people around me that had like done more of like the sampler education where they knew a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And they like processed each thing in their own, you know, in different ways. But I was like very much like a one trick pony. Like I knew etching. You could ask me anything about it. I just – I had like my thing and it it took me a long time to like sort of branch out and explore. And now I – I mean I very rarely make etchings even though I I love them as like an art form.
1: You know, in terms of developing that like particular skill, I mean was that kind of like a real – decision maker in terms of then going to graduate school? Like I want to go to a place that has a strong print kind of foundation or? Well,
0: that was definitely it. Um, at the time, and I guess still, um, I was really like highly ranked in print. You know, I was interested in traveling. I'd lived in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, there was like a, I mean, it's not, it's not a straight line, but, um, ultimately like one of the things I really wanted out of grad school was community. And I did kind of a tour of, it seemed like most of the strong print programs were in the Midwest. So I kind of did a driving tour, visited a bunch of schools before applying to any. And, uh, you know, Iowa made a really great impression on me. Ultimately, I feel like I got there and didn't necessarily hang out with the people I met when I visited, but I found my own community. And like, it just was a very, it's a very comfortable place, very warm place, at least like on a you know, a uh, personal level. So it was the right place for me at the time. But, you know, like there, you know, Mauricio Lisansky is, you know, like kind of the, the founder of their print program long. I mean, he's, he died just a few years ago, but you know, he had long since retired by the time I got there, but you know, he was famous for these large scale figurative etchings. And I, you know, that was what I was interested in. He, you know, the idea of making like nearly life-size etchings was something that was on my radar as a thing that I wanted to do, you know, Iowa had that history and it just, it, it called to me. So i it was a good, I mean, it was a good experience. The three years were really positive in terms of the friends that I made and the colleagues that I, you know, to this day, a lot of great opportunities have come from the friends that I made there and uh, I'm still in touch with quite a lot of them.
1: But, you know, kind of coming from like a strong background of being able to do one thing really well, Was that kind of like where you started kind of experimenting with what print could be too? And I mean, it's obvious, I guess, you know, in graduate school, but...
0: Yeah, I think definitely there was a lot more experimentation there. And I was just introduced to a lot of things that I wasn't at my undergrad. I mean, one of the appealing things about Iowa at the time, like the year I got there, I was part of the largest print class they had had in like a very long time. And there were, I don't know, something like 14 of us or 12 of us, I guess, 12 there were, there were 22 print graduate students. Like that's just print, not including painting and drawing, which was bigger, um, sculpture and the other areas. So, you know, inevitably you're exposed to lots of different ways of making and thinking about art and print. But, you know, I think the other thing is like when you're like, you're good at something can be really hard to give it up. And so having this strong foundation, I think made it, more of, it was a challenge to me to let it go, and I think i it took me kind of a long time i I mean in a lot of ways, I feel like i 've only sort of just hit my stride recently in terms of figuring out like what my true real interests are and you know what what
1: again I vaguely kind of remember these like um these silkscreen uh prints that maybe you had shown um when I was in graduate school, and I seem to remember like these monster truck rally like type mm-hmm. uh prints i mean i'm curious too because it seems like i don't know why i just imagine like figurative based print or and drawing is not going to be maybe as colorful or as exciting or you know kind of bring this level of uh, comedy almost to you know print and and maybe what art could be so i'm i'm curious like is that also something that kind of like got more expansive there in terms of like the like the conceptual ideas behind your your work and what you're interested in
0: in grad school, um, I did a trip with another, with one of my colleagues um, over the summer. We got some um, funding through the university because it's a it's a research school. So we applied for some grants and uh, we, we traveled to Eastern Europe. And I, I thought while in Eastern Europe, what I was going to see that was going to be really exciting and what I had already, what I had always associated with that. Region was this like intense black and white etching engraving i don 't know just like these really strong image images um, using this like process that I was so enmeshed in and um, when we got there, we were there for about two months, traveled around um, the Baltics and all through Poland, and even made it down into Croatia. But like what I found when I got there was that the, those works didn't engage me the way I thought they would. I'd seen them in books for so many years. Uh, I, you know, I thought you know that the region has this history, and I thought I was going to be so into it. And like almost accidentally, what I ended up being exposed to there were what was the their other strong graphic tradition, which is posters. And so I think that really. it came out of nowhere and just caught me by surprise. But, you know, the, you know, posters, you're much more likely to see, you know, uh, like intense use of color. And, um, I, maybe I had just been so, um, like, I didn't even know it, but I was starved for that kind of like dynamic visual quality after looking at, you know, black and white etchings for so long. But I think when I got back, I was really thinking about my own, relationship to that kind of graphic work. And, um, I think it was a chance for me to connect with my upbringing in terms of, like, I think about this, the, the first poster I ever made, which I think probably signaled a real shift for me is, was this image of a, like a motocross bike, uh motorcycle jumping an etching press. And it was a, a show promotion for an exhibition I was having. The idea in a way for me was like, like taking this, this artwork and this technical process that I've been so excited about and try to make it accessible to someone like my father or my brother, like try to make it as exciting to them as it would be, as it was to me. And so like, I ended up with this, like, you know, it's like a yellow color field with this, like, you know, again, this like dynamic, like this motorcycle jumping and etching press with like, sort of like a circus poster or something with like different use of typefaces and but the whole thing was a relief woodcut that, like, I didn't know anything about making woodcuts. I just sort of jumped in. And, you know, like, it, like, I mean, I, I made kind of a lot of mistakes, but it still, like, was ended up being a pretty, I think, a pretty great poster. And, uh, yeah, I think that that probably is a pretty important piece for me. Because I, I think it also had, like, kind of a, a sense of humor. And I think a lot of the etchings, something about etching and maybe Eastern Europe in general, like, there's sort of a lack of humor. And um, I think that that particular piece brought a lot like humor into my work and sort of maybe a little more lighthearted. Yeah. When
1: I think of printmaking, I think of like mezzotint and I just think of like somebody rocking. uh, There's someone that I knew in undergraduate that just rocked these little plates to create these super, super, super darks. And you're like, man, that's a lot of time, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a really labor intensive process and, on some level, I think that the world we live in demands that we work smarter, not harder. We had a visiting artist here uh, a week or two ago at UT who did a Mezzotint demo. And, I, you know, you watch it and I, I feel like I'm sort of like, it's it's great. And I, I feel like it, it it looks like an awesome thing. But at the same time, I I just can't imagine where in my schedule I would fit in mm-hmm. <laughs> mocking Mezzotints. Like... Um, so, yeah.
1: well, again, I, I, I'm bringing it up, I guess, because too, like, I mean, you, like I, again, I think of somebody like Durer or something and, and the kind of things that I maybe saw, you know, when I was younger and I totally get that idea of, you know, just kind of like a, almost like a different world, you know, or a different time of making. So it makes yeah. sense to kind of, you know, move forward. Um, and I don't know, I, I guess it's just cause it makes sense. Um, so in terms of like wrapping that graduate school experience and everything it sounds like again you kind of started there, and, and then maybe have slowly been kind of working towards where you're at now. But um, you wound up teaching and, and moving on after that. Is that right?
0: I in between grad, uh, undergrad, and graduate school, I actually did a two year. I had a two year position at Bucknell University in this sort of post back program, and it was a it, just a really fortunate opportunity for me that I think a lot of people would really kill for um, where a friend of my pref- undergraduate professor taught at Bucknell and she needed someone to fill this spot and she just sort of reached out to some people she knew and asked for suggestions. It was a really low-key call so like there weren't a lot of applicants um, but she chose me to do this, um, basically be their shop tech for for a two-year period and I got some credits so I was able to defer my student loans and I did some, got some TA experience but they basically pitched it as an opportunity to build up a portfolio to go on to grad school. So that's what I did with that time. Conveniently for me, as I was finishing grad school, Roz Richards is her name. Um, she was taking a sabbatical and she reached out to me and wanted to know if I was interested in like, you know, covering for her. So it was really perfect. I moved back to um, central Pennsylvania did that for about a year. The position ended. Um, I did a move down to Baltimore. Some friends from grad school were living there and they recommended I apply to this one year residency at the creative Alliance, which was literally just starting that year. It was the first, I was one of the inaugural class. Um, but so I moved down there and I did some like piecemeal adjunct work, drove up to Philly, um, once a week to teach a class at Tyler school of art. I did some classes at Micah, and Goucher College, which is a small liberal arts school in Baltimore. And, you know, normal, like, art handling stuff at the Walters Museum of Art. So just, like, kind of the normal piecing it together. From there, I moved to Philly, where I continued to teach a class at Tyler, but I also worked at a small commercial art school. And I, like, I worked for, like, a property management company in West Philly doing, like, like apartment renovation stuff, um, on rental properties. So from there, I got the job at, um, SIUC where we met because I, you know, at that point I was kind of living the, the, the part-time work was sort of adding up on my credit card statement. And, mm-hmm. um, I really, <laughs> I needed to figure something out that was going to be a little more secure. So.
1: Yeah. It's interesting, you know, cause we were just talking about timing again. It's been, Like I was saying to you earlier, it's like literally, you know, 10 years ago, I remember sitting in a, a, you know, class for graduating MFAs, you know, how to go out into the world and do something. Uh, So it's ironic, uh, almost like an anniversary, if you will. But one of the (laughs) things that I think about, I know that there is also like, especially there was a lot of push for technology because, you know, uh, large format printing, you know, becomes kind of like really affordable, at least somewhat affordable. And again, I remember kind of being introduced to all these kind of like new forward ways of thinking about print. And so I'm just kind of curious then, too, because you kind of just broke down a lot of, you know, different experiences. I would imagine that as you're, you know, going to all these places, you're picking up more and more techniques and ways of kind of doing print. And so I guess when you get to a point like that, and again, maybe still going back, you know, almost a decade, just maybe describe the work that we're kind of like starting there like the stick pieces i was just thinking we could talk a little bit about maybe like what was going on around that time so
0: yeah at the time there was almost like a fervor over technology and like um any way you could like connect yourself to technology seemed like a really making yourself relevant i I know when i got to siu one of like one of my big accomplishments initially was to like argue to get Wi-Fi in the art building, which, you know, seems sort of laughable now. And I'm sure it was inevitable. It would have happened one way or the other. But I remember sitting down and like explaining the need for us to have Wi-Fi. So, you know, you're welcome, SIU (laughs) art department. But uh, yeah, no. And then then, um, because, you know, SIU was a research school, they had funding, at least at the time. I don't know if the Illinois is in such good shape now, but Um, I was able to get a large format digital printer for the shop. And I mean, that whole position for me was really exciting because I had suddenly, I was, I went from like being nobody at the schools I taught where I was like this term hire that just kind of came in taught a class and left to being in charge of like a whole, you know, fully functional print shop with an etching studio, litho, silkscreen, you know, um, and this like digital technologies. So, I think that inevitably my connection with teaching has like expanded my, the range of the work that I make because I'm so facility dependent, like Mm -hmm. depending on what I have access to. But, you know, I got that job at at SIU with a really, I think, pretty lowbrow body of work. And it was like a transitional body of work that was dipping into my interest in pop culture and, you know, kind of like my... Science fiction, superheroes, this like sort of um, subject matter that, you know, like I think related a lot to my childhood, which I sort of at this point in time, I feel really like, I don't know, sort of when you talk about being embarrassed, it seems really like kind of embarrassing to me. Like, oh, God, yeah, I had to go through my phase where I like dredged up childhood stuff and sort (laughs) of addressed it, (laughs) whereas I really like I like I actively am trying not to do that these days, but, um, yeah, no. So I think the the work appealed to me. I remember like my artist talk at, for that job interview, getting like a lot of laughs, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know if that's as much a priority of mine these days, <laughs> but, um, you know, so yeah, I think when I was there, I started, um, playing around with the idea of cliches. Um, like, and I think that also came out of teaching in a way, like you teach students and like, why is it that these like kids at Tyler, will make these same images that some kids at SIU would make or, you know, like these like universal tropes that like come back again and again and like what makes them universal. So yeah, I did these like large stick pieces, digital output where I was wrapping, you know, one by twos in digital print so that I, I would make kind of a pile of -hmm. an image. So like, um, really thinking about the relationship of 2d to 3d and like how an image can become dimensional. And, and there was something about like breaking down the image where I needed something really, I almost needed a cliche image for it to work because I was like, it, it was harder to recognize the image. So it had to be a, an image that was, you're already prone to understanding. Do you know what I mean? So if it was like some, you know, really unique image of like, architecture or something you don't have the frame of reference to understand it whereas like if it's a sunset like everyone already knows what a sunset is so if you like make it hard to see people can put the pieces together to understand it well
1: what strikes me about the work too and this is still something that's very connected and like i was saying earlier there's maybe some print pieces that i remember seeing in there too but you know this these kind of like more sculptural slash installation works that are kind of smaller in scale, kind of moving to larger scales, but then they're just really formally kind of inviting things that you set up. I mean, is that really kind of like, is that like the primary thing that you respond to in terms of like thinking about how you're going to work through a piece? Um, And again, I don't know if this is something that really maybe relates directly to how it does now, but that's just what occurs to me thinking about all of this stuff is that there's always like a real formal intensity with your work.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it might just be my personality that, that the idea has to be worked out really clearly that way. I think through a somewhat formal lens, like I think about what it's going to look like going back to those stick pieces. Like at the time I was reading about dazzle camouflage and sort of camouflage in general. And um, there's this, you know, this interesting idea that comes out of cubist artists were grappling with this idea of like the, the uncertainty of the object, like, like, the idea that like um, you, could, you could never be totally sure about like like the edges of the object when in, in their representations of them, so I think I was trying to take that to another level with this idea of the image sort of like kind of falling apart like for anyone who isn 't familiar with dazzle camouflage or it 's like disruptive camouflage, right whereas like normal camouflage when you think about camouflage pants on somebody, the idea is it 's meant to conceal. But um, there's this other kind of mode of camouflage where the idea is to just disrupt. Like you know something's there. You just don't know exactly where it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in a world like where so much of what we deal with is like navigated by like screen resolutions and things, I think it seems like um, pretty, pretty relevant. I mean it came – it was developed in World War One, and a lot of people actually associate it with like the ideas of Cubism. The idea was like the Germans were like blowing up allied ships left and right with their U-boats. And the idea was like if you painted these ships in like really bright elaborate patterns, different colors, high contrast, it, it didn't – basically like if you looked at them through a periscope – You'd know something was there, but you didn't know exactly where it was. You didn't know where it began, where it ended, and it would be harder to detect which direction it was going in. And so I was really trying to apply a lot of that to um, what I was doing at the time. I don't know if that actually answers your question, Dave, but...
1: No, I, th- I think it does. And I think especially kind of getting towards something that I really don't know a lot about is is the process of ideas, You know, when you think about an image of, like, a sunset, I mean, is that something that is yours? Um, Is that something that you're consciously – like, how does that get worked out in terms of, you know, planning to execution?
0: Well, yeah, I think one of the nice things about a cliche is it does belong to all of us. I think – I don't know if that's something I'm working with directly these days, but I do think having worked with it, it's it's sort of really helped me clarify, like, what I think – that I actually think that it's really important that there be some amount of specificity in what you're doing, like that there has to be some anchor to make it. I mean, for lack of a better word, unique, I think um, it's something that like as a teacher, I've had to like, I've had a lot more discussions with my students about, and I think working with cliche has allowed me to help students like not make work. That's cliche. And I think like, again, it's like it, it requires, it just, I think that the, the way to combat like genericness is something specific. So, um, I, but I, that said, I think that having an somewhat generic, something that's a little generic will allow like an opening for people to enter the work. So it's like this idea of a balance, you know, to like fast forward to, to now, um, not that it was that long ago, but I think like the way I've been thinking About the creative process in the last, I mean, I guess about eight years ago, I changed jobs and I, my partner and I, who I also collaborate with Leslie Munchler, um, we moved down to Austin to teach at the University of Texas. And, you know, I think everything at UT is about research. It's just like this drum that's beating all the time, like research, research, research. And I think, I think it was already there, but I think like that drum has sort of really informed the way I think about my creative process. Like ultimately everything that I'm doing, and I think probably a lot of artists are doing, whether they say it or not, is about like a pursuit of knowledge. And what I've been doing more recently is just kind of whatever I'm reading, whatever I'm doing it's, it's part of the research and it gets processed into what I'm doing. And so it helps guide and steer what I, what I'm making. So I think like at the time I was looking at dazzle camouflage, it was a kind of research and informed what I was doing. These days I've been reading more and more about kind of libraries and sort of how libraries function to me. Like right now we're print. I'm very committed to print. I'm interested in print. I don't, I can't tell you. I mean, there's lots of like, possible reasons why that is. But the bottom line is it's, it's true. I want to be working in print. And I think the interesting places that things that are happening in print right now deal largely with sculpture and deal with publications. So like these two areas are like, to me, what's interesting in print. Like I have no desire to like make a landscape woodcut because there are a lot of good landscape woodcuts in the world. I don't really know that I need to add one to that list, Mm -hmm. but I think that there, there is a lot of room to explore in terms of three dimensional, um, collections of printed ephemera, um, publications and the way books are assembled and put together and what their purpose can be seems really like not uncharted territory by any stretch, but maybe a less charted territory.
1: No, that makes sense. And again, it's like exploring uh, the new frontier. He's trying to make a little joke there. Uh, so when we think about something like research, you know, again, you kind of maybe broke down that there's like different. I shouldn't say different, but like you know, again, maybe some people are kind of after about like just this repetition of a studio experience, as opposed to you know hmm. researching something and and developing an idea. So is this something where it's like a world that you are, just find yourself more and more interested in it, or is it something like you're reading? You know contemporary artists essays and um and work- and seeing work and and kind of reacting to that like how do you how does one start to kind of go like libraries i want to start researching uh you know that
0: yeah that I think my introduction to art um like let's say undergrad thinking of that as like my like like uh my main introduction to fine art um and what an artist does um was so much about daily practice and about like you said, like repeating a studio activity. So like I would go every day to the print shop. I would try to get there at the same time. I would commit all this energy to doing this process and making these images. And there was like a real routine to it. And I think, you know, maybe you have the time when you're young to do that. And I think there's like, you know, plenty of middle-aged or, you know, older people who, who find the time that make the time to do that. But I think in my life right now, like I juggle a lot of different things. Like I, I, I write, I teach, um, I'm a father, I'm a husband, like there's like all these different things that I do in my day to day. And I like, honestly, like, I'm just not that interested in the, the repetitive activity, mm-hmm. although I would, I would certainly recommend it to like a young artist. Um, cause I think when you're young, you kind of need maybe that commitment, yeah, I think now I think it's like a real like kind of gradual things cross your path, you read one thing, it re- there's a book referenced in that book and you you read that book and I mean like for the first time I have a show coming up in March and I'm I'm actually thinking about having like a bibliography that goes with it. I think the the diverse book influences that went into it like kind of tell a story, right? Cause it's not like just like all these books about this one subject, but there's a, a number of different subjects that I think ultimately tie together. And I, you know, you made a joke about star Trek, but I think that actually is really relevant. And one of the pieces that I'm making for this show, or it's actually fabricated and already in, in Canada is a, like a, like a monument to science fiction fandom
2: mm-hmm.
0: that basically is like a 19, a, like a copy of a 1950s uh, syllabus for a fanzine. So like zine culture originated uh, – well, there's like some debates about what the first zine was. But um, it was definitely like a popular, thriving media with science fiction fans in the like 30s, 40s, and 50s. And it's it's really like – there are a couple places that have preserved some records of this. But what I've done is made like this like relatively flimsy but but big – Monument? Do you know what the uh, Weld Blundell prism is by any chance? It
1: it sounds like something you'd see in a scientific uh, manual or something.
0: Well, it's like what it is. It's sort of like the Rosetta Stone or something. Like it's like this old artifact that is – I can't recall if it's like cuneiform or something like that. But it's like – it's actually quite tiny. It's like this um, little little obelisk, like um, maybe – two by four by two, you know? So it's like a, mm-hmm. I don't know, like what, like a banana sized little statue and it's got four, four distinct sides and they're each like carved with this like tiny little script. So what I did was I tried to make like a huge version of that as this like sort of almost like referencing 2001 and, and the obelisk in that I feel like I'm getting probably less and less coherent here, but um, this is, this is like where the like rubber meets the road in terms of like the different ideas coming to coming together. But so I'm trying to reference like antiquity while, you know, referencing this like recent history.
1: Well, I'm curious, you know, as as someone that maybe kind of finds myself in more of like a middle place when it comes to being a maker and how that relates to like the conceptual idea behind the work. I'm curious then, you know, like, do you see like your, research ultimately is the the main drive like the main focus as opposed to you know again i mean this might be very complicated ideas for someone to be able to to get you know like when they're seeing an exhibition um well and and so is that like idea of like a bibliography something that kind of helps uh bring something to that like how does how do how do all your ideas find their way into the the viewer which I, i would assume is something that you're you know still kind of really engaged with
0: like a lot of art making, I think there's like a really self – it comes from a pretty selfish place. Like I'm interested in these things. I want the excuse to like learn about them, to read about them. I'm, I'm using them as an opportunity to make things. I want people to like the things I make. Um, whether or not they get all this, I think the idea of a bibliography is, if anything, just a way to communicate to people that it's coming from specific places, that it's not – I could see someone walking in and being like somewhat confused or like not clear on what to make of the things that they're looking at. Mm -hmm. And I think like the idea of like maybe a book title might, might clue them in in some way or, you know, like give them like a thought that like, oh, okay, well, so this obviously must relate to this. What do I know about this? I don't know if it's truly necessary. And like I said, it's the, the first time I've ever considered doing it. Um, but I also think maybe it's a way for me to kind of catalog and not necessarily give me closure with those, those particular influences, but I think at least like a way to kind of solidify them and commit to them and say like, okay, so these, these were definitely, I addressed these at least in some way I may not need to address them again. So, I mean, cause I don't know about you, but I feel like when I, when I start looking at a like a library catalog, like one book inevitably leads to another book and leads to another book. And it just seems like this never ending thing, which is, I think is good. Like, I think, but I think it, you also need to like, uh, close the door now and then.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because you think about the way that it works in the digital world, you know, I mean, it's almost like you're creating a physical manifestation of all these thought chains, you know? Yeah, like how they kind of arrive into like an object or, you know, an installation or a sculpture. Yeah. So, again, as as we're um, winding this down to a close, uh, why don't you tell us a little about this upcoming show that you have? And again, I, I guess I'm just curious, then, is this another library themed uh, kind of idea coming up?
0: Yeah, I have this show um, at Snap Gallery. It's the Society of Northern Alberta Printmakers Gallery. Um, I I don't know how familiar you are with the Canadian arts system, but oh yeah, uh, yeah. I, they. I mean, it seems like every major city in Canada has at least one like print-based, you know, kind of arts venue. And so I've shown in Montreal, and Leslie and I have shown in Montreal together. But I I don't know. I applied with this um, idea for the show called the Formalist Library, and so I was really looking to approach. The library, as you know, like you think of the printed book as this conveyor of information, and and it, like it's it's actually like it took like a dip in I don't know about dip in popularity, but like there's been all this discussion of the death of print over the years, which honestly has been going on for like hundreds of years. But the idea of like what a book is in a in a digital world, and like what the, our relationship is to this physical object, I kind of just was wanted approach approach that through the idea of a few discrete sculptures. Um, what, what you, what a book can be if it's not like a book for reading or if it's a different kind of book for reading. So I'm really excited about the show. I've been working, researching and actually making for the last, you know, parts of the last year to get all this work together for it. But, um, I don't, I'll spare you like a piece by piece description, but I think, you know, in terms of influences, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely drawing on this interest in science fiction. You know, I did a piece a few, maybe a year and a half ago about, um, based on like Ray Bradbury's, um, there will come soft rains, which is from his, um, it's a short, it's like a chapter in his, um, book, the Martian Chronicles. And I think like, I'm sort of picking up a little bit where I left off there thinking about like deep time and, like in the geological sense, like things that last a long time and things that don't and the relationship of the two, of course, like with the election um, and all the talk of Russian influence that one of the pieces has took, taken a distinct turn. I, I've paid to have a, a huge roll of wallpaper printed based on a, a Soviet camouflage pattern Um, And that's going to be on the one, one of the the long walls and it's going to have, there are bootlegged books. Um, Like if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with Samizdat, but it's like basically like this like Soviet bootleg um, literature where basically because so many books were banned and forbidden, um, there was this whole culture of books that were being copied or hand typed and, and exchanged and sort of like circulated underground in the Soviet Union, like in the 60s and 70s. And so um, the piece is kind of influenced by that. So there's this combination of books that I I basically reprinted a number of books that I was using as source material for the show, and they're getting wrapped in the same camouflage and are being sort of hidden on a wall of camouflage. Those are going to be accessible, and people can pull them out and look at them and engage with them. But yeah, so it's like... it's called The foremost Library, but I think there's lots of non-formal aspects to it, like cultural context that I'm kind of playing with.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to think about it, especially, you know, like 1984 is like a best-selling book right now. Um,
0: right, I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah, well...
1: And it's well, it's just interesting, like the idea of a library, again, as, as someone that, you know, moved in the last number of years uh, to a place and, you know, is looking to survive... Uh, in this, uh, (laughs) this post-education world almost, you know, um, I visit the library all the time because I'm just like, man, there's just all this, all this wealth of information there. But, you know, again, think about it relative to like, you know, print, you know, if these are all things that are going to be disappearing, um, again, it's like creating these 10 commandments, if you will, you know, or almost like etching it into, into something that's a physical, you know, thing instead of something that can be, You know, deleted, you know, or just, you know, taken down. So it it really is kind of strange because I, you know, especially now, like it's more important, I think, than ever in some ways, just because like, again, like there's no like there's nobody like curating that information. It's just kind of like if you believe that the earth is flat well, totally. There's thousands, millions of people that believe it too,
0: you know? Yeah, no, it is. It's a, it's a very strange time. And I think, you know, you go back like to the 1950s or something, you know, someone would say it's, well, you can believe it because it's in black and white. And what that basically meant is if it was in print, it was true. And I think like that confidence has like so clearly eroded and, you know, there's no real reason why you should, you should believe things that you read. Um, cause so little of it, or so much of it is manipulated in different ways. One of the books that I reproduced for the exhibition is Eric Hoffer's um, The True Believer. I don't know if you – have you read it? It's this great, really short, easy-to-read book um, that – by this philosopher written in, I think, the 1950s, thinking like very post-World War II kind of moment, um, thinking about fascism and what it – what draws mass mass movements of people to these different – to like you know to, to fascism, and um it just seemed like a really relevant book and something that like maybe should be circulated again, and so i mean i don 't have any delusions about how many people will see it at my ambition, but just the idea like bringing it back, I remember reading it when I was an undergrad, and it all seemed very far away, and now it seems like very real and it's maybe a, like a way to help us understand why the world is turning in the direction it seems to have turned. Um, it has nothing to do with art it just as like a part of our, 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 this moment in time, it seems relevant.
1: Yeah. It seems so weird too, because I think like you really have to have a knowledge about something, you know, and there's like a real shift away from like thinking that anybody aside from a surgeon has knowledge or like yeah. a, a bank owner.
0: Yeah. Do we even, do we even trust surgeons these days?
1: I don't know. Well, that's what I mean. It's just weird because, and again, I I don't know if I'll keep this because I'm just rambling here. But like I, I say to, like I know that I've said this stuff recently. Like again, nobody nobody questions a surgeon how it's done, but you know, you definitely don't want somebody that's committed their life to public education to run public
0: education. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I saw this great cartoon that I I can't really remember the exact phrasing, so I'm sort of paraphrasing, but it's like it's like these two these two people standing in in the aisle of a of a plane, basically one of them saying to like the crowd like like I'm feeling pretty skeptical about the pilot of this plane. Does anyone else want to jump in and like, you know, to, like take over the flight with me or something? You know, like just mm-hmm. like the idea that like you're not like there is no such thing as expertise. And I, you know, like I told you already, like a big part of my life is like this notion of pursuit of knowledge. And like, it's like, it's my career, like even just beyond artwork, like it's what I do. Like I work with young students who I am trying to engage them in a way where they seek answers and look for, for meaning. And like, they're entering a world where, you know, there are definitely forces actively discouraging that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, so essential to being able to figure things out, you know, not just for oneself, but for the world, you know, you think about the, I mean, all the art really is, I mean, you're presenting these ideas in in some sort of configuration to some other people. You have to kind of bring some sort of hopefully logical kind of viewpoint in terms of like why you made these decisions. And then people are giving you feedback as to whether or not you know, it really resonates with them or it kind of does. And ultimately it's just that continual pursuit that winds up, you know, making people pretty good at research and analyzing things. And, you know, again, I I think that's why I stress the, the importance today because people can't wean that stuff out, you know, like they, they, it's hard to, and again, I'm not saying this as some sort of elitist, you know, like I know everything, but like, um, It's just weird because like that thought, (laughs) thoughts don't really need to travel, travel much now, you know, to get from point A to point B. Like people don't seem to want to do the work almost. So Mm -hmm. to kind of be in pursuit of getting people to engage in that and to kind of be analytical and to think about, you know, all the steps in between point A and point B, I think is just so important.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I completely agree. I completely agree.
1: Well, so what do you got coming up uh, in the next year? Um, again, is there anything that you would like to, uh, uh promote aside from this uh, exhibition that's opening up in March?
0: We didn't really talk about it a lot, but my, um, wife and I collaborate pretty regularly these days. And, um, we're working on a project for, uh, a residency and exhibition in Cork, Ireland this summer. Mm-hmm. So that should, we're very excited about that. So that's, that's kind of the next, next big thing that's coming up very quickly. And then, you know, beyond that, um, I do still – I'm still in touch with Amzi and Robert from Printeresting, which is another project I had going for quite a few years. And we're kind of – we're cooking something that has yet to take complete form, but it might involve an exhibition in Europe and some other things, so a publication. But, yeah, I don't know. Lots of things coming up, but nothing I necessarily need to talk
1: about. (laughs) Well, and so again, uh, the website, jasonurban.com, um, is there any other places that you love to kind of be, you know, out there in terms of social media? Cause you know, there, there, there's a chance somebody will listen to this and be like,
0: yeah, I want right, to find out right. more, you know? Right. Yeah. Maybe. Um, you know, I, I quit Facebook years ago and I quit Twitter in November. Mm-hmm. I did recently started Instagram. I don't know how long I'll stay on it, but, um, you can find me there if you look hard enough. And um, I mean, my website has links. I have a Tumblr site that I post to occasionally. But yeah, the best way to get a hold of me and find out what I'm doing is email.
1: Awesome. Well, again, uh, it's great to kind of finally have you on solo and uh, <laughs> to hear about where where the legend came from, if you will.
0: Well, I'm, I just want to say thanks, Dave. And um, I'm really I'm kind of amazed at your like never ending curiosity that you can like that you continue to do this project and make time to talk with people. It's, it's something that it doesn't surprise me, but it does kind of amaze me. It's, it's, it seemed utterly predictable from knowing you um, 10 years ago that you might be doing this, but um, I think it's really great.
1: Thanks once again to Jason for joining me. You definitely want to go check out his exhibition that's coming up March 16th at Snap Gallery. It's called The Formalist Library. So if you're up in Alberta, please check it out. If you aren't going to be in Alberta, definitely visit Jason's website, jasonurban.com, and you can find out plenty more information and see a lot of the work that we were talking about today. To any new listeners, we do want to encourage people to check out studiobreak.com. Again, there is a wealthy archive of episodes. You can find them all on Studiobreak with images, links to the artists' websites, and, of course, you can listen right in the default player, but many opt to just click that iTunes link and subscribe to the podcast there, so please do that. Of course, if you would be so kind, you can leave us some feedback in iTunes so that it helps people find this podcast, or, of course, you can feel free to share it in a variety of social media platforms. Again, we do have a Facebook page, so please like it and check it out. Again, we provide updates of new podcasts as well as other opportunities, so please like and follow our Facebook page. You can check us out on Tumblr, that's studio-break.tumblr. And you can send all your tweets to at Studio Break on Twitter. Again, it's always great to see artwork and to have interesting inquiries and stuff like that on facebook and twitter so please feel free to say hello i would of course like to thank skylar mail who provides the music A studio break you can check out his artwork and everything is up at Skylermail.net. if you want to see some of my paintings you can visit davidlinaway.com and that is our episode this week hope that you enjoyed listening we'll talk to you real soon